You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. There's this powerful statement that says, your outer world is a direct reflection of your inner world. Now, this can be a very difficult thing to kind of unpack cognitively because we often believe that our life is really what's happening in the external environment. We're taking in all of this data and it's kind of guiding our internal feedback, the way that we feel, our thoughts, and just being able to navigate through our reality. We're so externally focused oftentimes, but our external assessment of things is determined by what's happening internally. It's going to be determined by our own experiences, our perceptions, our beliefs, our biases, our habitual thoughts, right? Dr. Daniel Amen says that we have these ants that can be, quote, automatic negative thoughts or pats, positive automatic thoughts as well. We're going to have habitual thought patterns as well that are going to determine how we're associating with our external environment. So on this episode today, we're going to have an absolute masterclass on navigating our internal world, being able to shift and take control of our perspective, to understand our vast array of emotions in a way that you have never heard before. This episode is literally going to change how you relate to yourself and the world around you in the most remarkable way. And for this mission, we have the very best person in this field. And I guarantee you're going to walk away feeling exponentially more empowered and capable and this is also incredible information to share with our friends and family and also going to learn a lot about being able to utilize these tools and share these tools with the next generation, with our kids, with your nieces and nephews, grandchildren. Getting educated about our own psychology is of the utmost importance today. Now, obviously, one of the things that's left out of the equation when talking about emotional well-being and our mental health and our cognitive ability is our nutrition. And it's so crazy that this is still a soft science in many ways, because if we really understand the root of these things, if we're talking about our neurotransmitters communicating and our hormones and our cells being able to do cell stuff, right? The replication, the production of ATP from our mitochondria, the list goes on and on and on. All of these processes are predicated on food because they're all made from food. That's how much food matters. And if we're talking about cognitive ability, there are certain foods with a story tradition of being able to improve our cognition in the most remarkable ways. And we have access to those things today versus the synthetic approach where we're trying to hack the system and utilizing things that are far less quality for far less effective results. Most of the time, if I ever want that little bit of cognitive boost, I'm turning to something that was featured in the journal Advanced Biomedical Research, and it found that royal jelly has the potential to improve spatial learning, attention, attention is super important today, and memory. In addition, they found that royal jelly has antimicrobial, anti-tumor, and anti-inflammatory capacity. Royal jelly has been found to facilitate the differentiation of all types of our brain cells. And to top it off, researchers in Japan discovered that Royal jelly has the power to stimulate 
neurogenesis in the hippocampus, right? The memory center of our brain. If you're like, what is royal jelly? Is that like schmuckers? Is it like, I don't think you're ready for this jelly. What kind of jelly is this? Royal jelly is the exclusive nutrition that is provided to the queen bee. And if you didn't know this, the queen bee lives on average one to two years, whereas worker bees live an average of like 150 to 200 days in the winter and only 15 to 38 days in the summer. So on average, we'll just say 100 days versus one to two years. The queen bee can live upwards of seven times longer than worker bees. And the developing queen bee is exclusively fed royal jelly. It's been known for quite some time, so much science to support its efficacy. And most importantly, it's been utilized for centuries for supporting human health. The royal jelly-based nootropic that I use is from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model. And you're going to get 25% off the royal jelly-based nootropic, Be Smart. It's called Be Smart. And not only does it highlight the benefits of royal jelly, but it also features Bacopa, one of my other favorite cognitive boosters. A randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trial published in 2016 found that after just six weeks of use, Bacopa significantly improved speed of visual information processing, learning rate, memory consolidation, and even decrease anxiety in study participants. Be Smart is really something special. Head over there, check them out. It's beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 25% off their incredible bee products, their superfood honey, their nootropic, their lozenges, amazing, amazing stuff. And by the way, they do third-party testing for over 70 pesticide residues that are commonly found in bee products that you're simply not hearing about. Also making sure that it does not contain other common toxins found in bee products like heavy metals, including arsenic, lead, E. coli bacteria, salmonella, yeast, all these things that should not be coming along with the benefits that you're trying to get from these incredible products. So Beekeepers Naturals does things at an entirely different level. Head over there, check them out. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Incredible Podcast by C. Santana 809 Sean is fun, personable, and his science is on point. I'm a biology teacher and a knowledge fanatic. I first became hooked after listening to Sean on Mind Valley when he spoke about water. So glad I found this. It is the best podcast I've come across ever. Thank you so much for sharing that review over on Apple Podcasts. I truly, truly do appreciate that. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Dr. Susan David is an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist, and she's the author of the number one best-selling book, Emotional Agility. Dr. David's work has been utilized by some of the biggest organizations in the world, including Microsoft, NASA, Google, Adobe, the list goes on and on and on. She has one of the most popular TED Talks of all time, and also, she's been featured in countless major media outlets, Forbes, the list goes on and on and on. And she's just been somebody who's been an incredible educator and inspiration for me personally. I've learned so much from Dr. David over the years, and this conversation is more important than ever. So let's jump into this interview with the one and only Dr. Susan David. Dr. Susan David. So grateful to have you here where I can look at you I know. for the first time in person. 
I'm so excited. It's yeah, it feels like it's been long. Yeah, I think we connected maybe five, six years ago. And um, you know, I've just been so grateful for your work, especially the last couple of years, just having those tools that you provided me with to be able to analyze emotions and to not kind of stuff them down. Um, but one of the first things I want to ask you about is that you shared that our external actions or how we show up in the world is driven by our internal emotions, right? When I think that in society, we're taught the opposite, like the external environment is dictating how we feel. So can you help to make sense of that? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about our inner worlds, our thoughts, you know, we might have thoughts about I'm not good enough or there's no point in trying. Mm -hmm. We might have emotions and we have, you know, many different emotions that course through our worlds every day. Emotions, experiences like stress or disappointment, joy, anxiety, and so on. And we also have our stories. We have stories. Some of them were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old. Stories about whether we are good enough, what kind of life we deserve, what kind of love we deserve. And as it turns out, how we deal with our inner worlds does drive everything. It drives how we love, how we come to our relationships, what we share, whether we're able to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It drives how we parent, the way we are able to show up to our children and to help them to navigate their own emotions. It drives how we lead in our organizations and beyond. And of course, it drives our health and our well-being because, as an example, when we come home from work, if we are feeling stressed and we are unable to recognize that that stress is about something that happened in the workplace that day, and so we push it down or we're not able to deal with it effectively, that then we know impacts on our likelihood that we'll sit in front of the TV, as an example as opposed to making effective choices. So, so much in our society suggests that it's all about externalities. You know, that if, if we, um, you know, if we, if we structure the environment, right, it's almost this idea that, yes, you know, if we don't like our house, we can paint the walls. If we don't like our car, we can change it. And there's almost this idea that we can change anything by changing externalities. Whereas actually so much of the kind of life that we have, the kind of love that we have, and the choices that we make is driven by the relationship that we have with ourselves. Mm. Now, just to be clear, that's not to say that the external world doesn't matter. We know that systems and policies make a difference. Uh, we know that if we live in a community in which we are served by public transport and it takes two hours to get to and from work, that that's going to impact on our lives, you know, and to, to uh, deny that would be denying reality. So we know that systems and processes make a difference. We also know that we can set up our immediate environment in ways that are congruent with choices that we want. So, mm. for example, you know, the, the simplest, most obvious example is if you're trying to make effective health choices and you go into the kitchen and there's no fruit, but there is chocolate. Well, you know, your environment is nudging you in a particular direction. But ultimately, the, the way we navigate our 
inner world, our ability to be healthy with ourselves, with our emotions, to be connected with our values and who we want to be, this has a outsized impact on everything else. And in many ways, these ideas of emotions and inner world have historically been pushed to the sidelines. Mm. And so, Sean, I know you speak to a lot of psychologists and you do a lot of work in the area of psychology, but I'll share with you that when I was doing my PhD in emotions and I was in a psychology department, I struggled to find an advisor who was willing to supervise me, to supervise my research in the area of emotions. because. Even in a psychology department 20 years ago, the idea was that actually it's about what you can measure, it's about externalities, it's about maybe behaviors, mm. but the whole idea of emotions was seen as being soft, fluffy, intangible. We see this in our organizations where emotions have become feminized and pushed to the sidelines. And one of the things that I'm most excited about of my work in the world we're in right now is there's a radical reawakening and a radical reckoning with this acknowledgement that emotions shape our thinking, our decision-making, and our behaviors. And they're probably the most powerful resource that we can have. Yeah, those are the things that determine our lives, literally, you know, and to be considered this soft science for so long when it's really the determinant of our reality as a species, you know, it's so fascinating that that's the case. And this is why your work is so important in bringing these things to the forefront. I love the example that you gave of that commute, for example, you know, that experience of the commute is going to be unique to every single one of the billions of people on the planet based on our perception of things and how we interact with our own emotions, our own internal guidance system. Yes. And if you could, you also said the S word in there. You said stress. Yes. And this, and we'll put this study up for everybody to see, but one of the best meta-analysis on stress and the outcomes that it has with our health demonstrates that 60 up to upwards of 80% of all physician visits today are for stress-related illnesses, right? So it's a huge component in our health outcomes but you shared recently that even stress itself is largely determined by our perception of that stress. So stress is real and we know that stress is real and we know that we live in an environment in which there are greater levels of ambiguity and almost where our technology has outpaced our human ability yeah. to deal with those changes. And this places stress on us and it is another reason that developing these kinds of emotional agility skills become crucial in this world that we are facing into. And so the example here is we know that stress makes a difference to people. We know that stress impacts on people's health and well-being. And we know because there's a huge bothness in here. And th this is a term that I'm using more and more because this idea of bothness is this recognition that we can hold 
the capacity to acknowledge stress and its real impact on people in our one hand. And in the other, we can acknowledge that sometimes, like sometimes I have this experience where I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. And people in my environment will remind me that actually the stress that I'm experiencing is a good kind of stress because it's stress because things are, yeah, it feels a lot and it feels overwhelming, but it's because things in some ways are going in the direction that I want. So that's an example of how sometimes our blanket, non-nuanced view, oh, all stress is bad, starts to hide the subtleties. So I'll give you some examples of other subtleties in this. The one is the one that I've already mentioned, which is sometimes the stress is actually values congruent stress. Another example of where stress can be really good is that Generally, when we are moving in the direction of our values. So what do I mean here? We are making choices that are difficult, but that are congruent with the kind of health that we want or with the kind of relationship, relationships we want um, or the kind of jobs we want. Often that kind of change can feel stressful. It's stressful to have a difficult conversation with someone. It's stressful to put your hand up for a new job role because it's taking you in a place that feels strange and new. And yet stress, that kind of stress that's values concordant, not just stress for the sake of it, but stress that's values concordant is the fountain of our growth and our connection. And so one of the things I talk about a little bit in my TED talk is is this idea that Sometimes people say to me, you know, I just want the stress to go away. You know, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to get my heart broken. I don't want to experience change. And I sometimes, you know, jokingly, obviously, I will say, you know, those kind of goals sound like dead people's goals Mm. because, you know, dead people never, I imagine dead people never get stressed. Dead people never have their hearts broken. Dead people never experience uh, the discomfort of having a new job not working out. You know, we don't get to leave the world a better place or raise a family or have a meaningful career without stress and discomfort. And so I think there's real power in thinking about what is the relationship that we have with stress. And if we are experiencing stress in its unfaltered form as being truthfully really difficult and really challenging and really having costs, then that becomes an extraordinary and beautiful invitation to also develop some of the emotional agility skills that I speak about, which is trying to understand what the stress is signposting to you and how to navigate that. So I don't know if that's a helpful direction to go in, in terms of like, what does this look like practically? Uh, But yeah, let me know. Yeah. I mean, stress is a sign of life. You know, you said it so poignantly, you know, it it reminded me of the sixth sense. You know, I see dead people. Uh, Haley Joe Osmond, shout out to The Sixth Sense. Yeah. You don't know what movie I'm talking about, do you? No, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Actually, I, I, 
Bruce Willis. I, I, I know exactly which yeah. movie you're talking about. And as as you were talking about it, I've got another movie that I'll talk about <laughs> later. But yeah, but yeah. So <laughs> this this just really shot up for me that you know it's the I love this term boldness. You know because yes. even when I shared that stat about upwards of eighty percent of physician visits being for a stress related illness, it's like what does that mean? What does stress mean? And it's not just this bad thing because we love labels today. Like humanity is so attached to labeling yeah. things like this bad, this good. And one of the things that you talk about, and this is one of the great gifts of having someone like you here, is um, how we attach these labels to ourselves. So even when we are sad, you know, it's just like, I'm sad versus I'm feeling sad. And I want to talk about this because you've really helped me to articulate this and understand this in a different way that I am not my job. I am not my emotion. I am not my, even my, my health status right now, because I've seen yeah. this in my clinical work for years. You know, people come in, they're so attached to their identity. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a diabetic. And it's true, you have the, that set of symptoms, but that's become your identity. You know, yes. I'm this, yes. I'm that. You understand what yes. I'm saying? Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a little bit of what I observed when I was in my psychology training, doing clinical work is, that labels are extraordinarily powerful. Labels can help us to understand the world, but labels can also become prisons. And this becomes very challenging because what can happen is we can begin to over-identify with a particular part of ourselves such that that part becomes the everything. And I'll give you an example of, of what I mean. If we think about um, the core narrative that we have about emotions, even in psychology, in most of the academic articles uh, in, in the world, it's that emotions are good or bad. Okay. They are positive or negative. So what is bound up in that? is the idea that the good emotions are experiences like joy and happiness, um, positive thinking, that the, the, these emotions and thoughts are good. And that when you have other experiences, when you have experiences like stress, grief, disappointment, loss, anger, frustration, um, any other thought or story that you might have, that these are bad. And so if you think about it, if you have this mental model that some of these things are good and some of these are bad, and then you do something that's called living, and living means that your heart is going to get broken, that things aren't going to go according to plan, that uh, sometimes you're going to think you're in control of your business goal or your strategy, and then this thing called COVID comes and taps you on the shoulder and laughs in your face and says, aha, you thought you were in control, but actually, you know, you aren't. So if you have this mental model, which is that emotions and thoughts are good or bad, and then you do this thing called living. And so what you experience is the truth of living, which is that beauty and fragility hold hands with one another. Again, come to this bothness. That when you love, you also open up yourself to having your heart broken. That when you're in a job, that sometimes things don't work out in the way that you want, 
then life demands that you're going to experience some of the so-called bad thoughts and bad emotions. So let's take this then to this logical conclusion. Now, not only do you have this this, um, idea that you've got good or bad emotions, but you experience a bad emotion, so-called bad emotion. And then what you start doing is you start beating yourself up about having it. So in psychology, often we think about type one and type two emotions. Type one is the, I'm stressed. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. Type two is when you start hustling with whether you are allowed to actually experience that experience. You know, I should be, I'm I'm unhappy in my job, but I should be grateful that at least I've got my job. Uh, I'm feeling sad, but I'm not allowed to be sad because the world is demanding that I be positive. And so then what you start doing is you start layering on shame and blame and judgment. And now, instead of being in a situation where you're experiencing the type one emotion, the type A emotion, the first experience, now you've got this extra layer of messiness. And so now you're not in a clean relationship with yourself. You're not able to look at that emotion and say, what is this emotion telling me? What's helpful to me here? What's values congruent here? Instead, you are in a war with yourself. So I think that this labeling of good and bad is one type of labeling. The other that I just wanted to connect with briefly, because I think it's so important, is you mentioned this idea about sometimes what happens is the emotion or the experience becomes our identity. And I think this is really powerful. And I'll give you an example of what I mean here, which is words matter. Words matter. So often we'll say something like, I am sad. Okay, I am sad. I am angry. And it's so commonplace. We all do this all the time. Like, I am sad. Of course, like, what else would I be saying? But if we think about it, when we say, I am sad, what we are actually saying is, I am all of me, 100% of me is defined by sadness. And so, Sean, one of the things that I speak about a lot in my work is about the fact that all of us, every single person listening today, we all have beauty and wisdom and compassion and capacity and values and intentions. You know, in in the dark of night, when we aren't in a swirl of anxiety, but rather we kind of get into bed and we are just alone with ourselves and we kind of tap into the core of who we are as individuals. Every single one of us has values and and like this kind of deep voice inside of ourselves that is really what I want to think of as our human wisdom. And when we say something like, I am sad, there's no space for anything else. There's no space. If I am angry with my partner or with my spouse, if that emotion is all enveloping, there's no space for who do I want to be in this interaction? Who do I want to be in this relationship? 
what are my values right now? Yes, I'm angry with this person, but what is the greater goal of how I want to come to this relationship? And so I often think that when we say I am sad, it's almost like what we are doing is we are saying almost that sadness is a cloud in the sky and we have become the cloud. And what I like to think instead is that there's huge power in naming our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are. They are thoughts, emotions, and stories. They aren't fact. They aren't our identity. They are thoughts, emotions, and stories. So they are part of us, but they are not all of us. And the way we start getting this beautiful separation so that other aspects of ourselves can come to the fore is when we start noticing them for what they are. And this is what you were reflecting on earlier. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing the urge to shut down in this conversation. I'm noticing the thought that there's no point in trying. I'm noticing that this is my I'm not good enough story. When you start to notice your thoughts, your emotions, and stories for what they are, which is thoughts, emotions, and stories, parts of us, but not all of us, what we start doing is we start creating space for other aspects of ourselves to come forward. And so, what we're doing when we do this is we move away from I am sad, I am the cloud, into recognizing that you're not the cloud, that every single person listening, you are not the cloud. You, you are the sky. You are the sky. You are human and messy and able and big enough and capacious and beautiful enough to experience all of your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories, and to still choose who you want to be in this space, in this moment. You aren't defined. You know, when you, look at the, when you look at the sky, you don't look at a cloud and define the sky by the single cloud. And emotional agility is about moving into the space of being the sky. Mm, wow. I just love listening to you talk. This is so <laughs> wonderful and so powerful. Um, you know, even a term like sadness, there's a spectrum. There's a complete variation of what that can mean for countless people. There's yes. different degrees of sadness, but we tend again, put this, we take away the bigness of ourselves and isolate it into this one simple term. Yes. But yes. what can, what can a, a feeling or an emotion like sadness, what gift can it be providing for us? What kind of feedback? Oh my goodness. Well, we can do this with every emotion, but let's use sadness as an example. And then maybe we can circle back to stress because the same idea applies. Um, sadness. Okay. So we look at sadness and again, the label, the idea of, oh, I need to just be positive. I can't be sad can lead us to hustle with sadness. But let's just settle into sadness because of course, we often use what I call um, very big umbrella terms to describe our emotions. And I'm sad as an example of that. But underneath the umbrella, if I had to say to someone, what are two options other than sadness that you might use to describe that thing that you're calling sad? So the umbrella is sad, but what else might be happening? Uh, disappointed, grieving, 
unsupported, lost, confused. There's, there's literally an entire range of emotion, both in label as well as aliveness and intensity of emotion. So when you just say, I am sad, that is a very broad brushstroke that doesn't have nuance to it. Now, you might say, well, like, really, you, you're being very nerdy here. you like really spinning hairs about this word sadness. But there is a world of difference between sad and being unsupported. Sad and grieving. Sad and being confused because I don't know how to move forward with this relationship or in my career. So when you just label something as sad, your body, your psychology doesn't actually know what to do with that because it's so non-nuanced. It's so uh, broad brushstroke. So I often think of this idea, which is this word is overused, but I want to use it in this context, which is what psychologists call emotion granularity. Emotion granularity is a superpower. Emotion granularity is where you move beyond the broad brushstroke of what an emotion is and start saying, but what is it really? What are two other options? So when we start labeling our emotions more accurately, what it literally starts to do is it starts to help us to understand, oh, what is the cause of that emotion? And what do I need to do in relation to it? So it literally starts to enable what we call the readiness potential in our brains, the part of our brains that starts to mobilize us for action mm -hmm. in the direction that is needed. So this becomes really powerful because if we say I'm sad and I'm stuck in my sadness and my sadness is all of me, there's no space for anything else. But when we start saying something like, I'm feeling unsupported, you can see that immediately what that starts to do is it starts to say, okay, why am I unsupported? Who am I unsupported by? How do I get more support? And so this starts to move us from out of our heads and into our lives. Often when people think about emotions and the work that I do on emotions, they're like, oh, is this about navel gazing? No, it's actually about using this extraordinary power that moves us out of our heads and into our lives, but into our lives in ways that are intentional and values connected and whole and healthy and, and grounded. So, so Sean, maybe if you don't mind, can I give two other examples, like Absolutely. maybe using stress and, and anger? So a couple of years ago, I remember doing some consulting work with a, he was a business executive and he would describe how he was angry. And he would just, I'm like angry, I'm angry, and my team's angry. You know, and he kept on using this word angry. And I started just saying to him, like, what are two other options? You know, what, what else, you, you seem to be going to this very quickly. What are two other options? And he started to say, maybe I'm not angry. Maybe I'm scared. I'm in a new role, I'm in a new part of my career, maybe this thing that I'm calling angry is not anger, maybe it's scared. Mm. And what about your team? 
well, maybe my team's not angry. Maybe my team is actually mistrusting. You know, maybe they, they, they have had experiences in the workplace that have turned them away from trust, and maybe they are mistrusting. Now, you can see how if you are going into a meeting or I use a workplace example here, but a conversation with your spouse, with your loved one, with your children, with your teenager, where your orientation is, I am angry and the other person's angry. It's a very different conversation than if you are, I am scared and they are looking for opportunities to build trust. And it was so powerful. A couple of months later, I happened to go out with this individual and, and a, a group of people for dinner. And this guy's wife was there and she, they were speaking about this at the table. And she said, like, this literally changed their relationship because he would come home and he would say, oh, it looks like you're angry. You, you, you're so angry. And she would be, I'm not angry. I'm just tired. Or I'm not angry. I just feel unsupported. So this changes the tone of our relationship. And I want to just lastly circle back to stress because stress is the most common language that we use when we're having a tough day. But there is a world of difference between, again, stress and disappointed. Stress and that knowing, knowing, feeling that you're in the wrong job, the wrong career, or that your relationship isn't working out. And when you are more accurate with understanding what it is that's actually the emotion beneath this thing that you're talking about, you empower yourself in such profound ways to then actually understand and take action. We, we begin to own our emotion rather than our emotion owning us. Yeah. Oh, that's what it's all about. You know, you're advocating for something that is scary in of itself, which is introspection, you know, because today we're so externally focused. There's so much pulling and vying for our attention and so much programming, in a sense, telling us what we should be doing or what we should be feeling. And because of that, we're not really, we're not often taught the tools that you're teaching to have that ability to self-assess to pay attention to this, I, I struggle to even say a word to articulate how powerful and valuable our emotions are when talking to you, but we're, our bodies and our minds are broadcasting this valuable data, but instead we've began to medicalize our emotions rather than having the tools to actually find the gold in them. Yes, yes. Uh, that's such a powerful, you know, as you talk, I'm, I'm drawn to the core ideas of Charles Darwin. You know, what does Charles Darwin describe? He describes how our emotions have evolved as signals that help us to communicate with ourselves and others. And yet what has happened is there has been a exactly as you describe, a medicalization of normal emotions, whereas emotions are seen as good or bad, they're seen as positive or negative. One of the greatest tragedies, I think, of our time is that these 
human experiences that are so profound, that are so differentiating, that are so core to our collective consciousness, to our ability to walk through the world, have been pushed aside. And and it's really interesting if, if I can get completely nerdy here, but it's like really interesting as to how and why this happens. If we think about um if we think about the history of emotions and we think about the history of how emotions have been considered uh over the past couple of hundred years, I'd love to just play through that that emotions have basically become feminized, that emotions have become something that have been associated with emotionality and being female. And there is a history as to where this comes from, which is if we think about education and we think about historically education being open to males and not to females. Mm. So what is what is what was taught in formal education, and I'm talking literally dating back to the Victorian era and era and before, the things that could easily be taught and that were taught to males because education was open to males were the math, the sciences, the physics, etc. So you get this false idea that that maleness is associated with logic and strategy and mathematics and sciences and and all of these kinds of uh, aspects of of life and that being female is associated with the soft stuff uh emotions the stuff that's intangible the stuff that's fuzzy and it is a tragedy and the reason that i use that word and i don't use that word lightly is because of this firstly you you see this play out in many different aspects of life. You see, for instance, in organizations, how uh, when organizations started moving through the Industrial Revolution, the idea was that if it could be measured and counted, if it was logical, if it was strategic, therefore it mattered. And so there is a whole world where now emotions were seen as being soft skills, pushed to the sidelines. And so you have these awful contexts in workplaces where terrible leaders who have, well, I don't even want to call them leaders, like people in power are sheltered because they are somehow good at strategy and logic, even though they leave people feeling unseen and 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 hurt and psychologically injured by their um by their actions so that is one way that you see it playing out another way that you see it playing out is that in schools what is taught mathematics the sciences the and yet the stuff that's going to help our children walk through life is their ability to deal with the reality of life difficult emotions, how to manage them. So you see this, and then you're also starting to see this even in uh, issues around how children are raised. We know that girls are often spoken to a lot more about their emotions. Uh, When a child comes home from school and they've had a tough day, 
when they are a girl, <laughs> a female, when the, the, the parents, both parents, are much more likely to have conversations about how did you feel today? When a boy comes home from school and has had a tough day, the parent is much more likely to say, what did you do today? What did you do? Did you win? Didn't you win? Much more task focused. And then we wonder, we wonder why we're starting to see, uh, and I don't want to play too much into gender, but you start to see issues around, in some gender different studies, uh, females getting stuck more in their emotions, um, boys struggling to even identify what their emotion is. Mm. You know, you see this play out in life, in relationships, in mental health and well-being. And again, I don't want to play too much into gender because, of course, uh, there are so many individual differences and, and contextual factors and personality. And there's a whole lot of stuff that comes into like emotional skills. But but I suppose the main point that I'm making is connecting to what you're saying, which is the world conspires in many ways to have us unsee ourselves, to not be in a clean relationship with ourselves, and to then move into an autopilot where we have had these display rules in our families where we're told what to think, what to believe, and how to feel. And the environment, social media, everything is doing the same. And so it becomes more and more important for us to get grounded in these ideas. Yeah. I mean, you just articulated why we are in the state that we're in, where we don't have the tools accessible for introspection, for processing data, our internal data, which is the most valuable data because it's determining everything we do in life and our experience here yeah. on this planet. But this is because it's inundated into us as children. You know, we're, we're indoctrinated with this Kind of dichotomy again emotions good or bad you know processing different based on our gender and we've seen the outcomes of this yes. which is a very kind of fractured society and i remember you know just even the experience of going to high school and you know the aspiration like you you're set on a track like you're supposed to do these things yeah and even being able to accomplish those things seeing the vast majority of humans coming out the other side you know, doing the thing, getting the job, being, again, even as I'm talking to you, though, I struggle to label these things so simply, but just for the point of communication, ending up depressed, ending up with anxiety, ending up with a, a vast array of mental health issues, just basically being unhappy, not feeling like life is really what they thought it would be, right? Because we're, we're following this plan but we're not able to navigate our own internal world. And one of the other things I want to talk to you about, the CDC just published a report, this is just a couple of months ago, on the resulting mental health crisis among adolescents specifically. And nearly half of all teens analyzed reported that they feel, quote, persistently sad or hopeless, unquote. And one in five saying that they have contemplated suicide. And this was just, again, resulting from the last two years, their experience. So almost half of these teens feeling persistently hopeless yeah. and sad. But again, what tools have we provided with these children to be able to navigate these things instead of just staying stuck and becoming those things? 
Yeah, and and it's so and there's so many complex factors that impact on depression, anxiety, mental health, and so on. It is remarkable to me, however, even in that context, how if you are a child struggling with math, there is no shortage of Can Academy and its equivalents, as beautiful as they are, that will help you with that math. If you are a child struggling with feeling bullied or feeling unseen by your parents or feeling lonely or thinking like, I don't even know what my values are, like what do I even care about? There, there, there is no can academy, academy equivalent. I mean, I think it's like probably one of the most profound uh, opportunities to use technology for good, which is to develop out these scalable, learnable tools that actually can help with addressing this. And what you describe is is exactly right. Um, you know, we know, for instance, that there is something called display rules and display rules are the kind of rules that we have about our emotions. So the example that I gave of like good and bad emotions, like that's an example of a display rule. Uh, when we live in a society that tells us just be positive, good vibes only, it's it's um, if you think positive thoughts like everything else will become attracted to you. What that can do, it sounds so good on the surface, um, but actually the the it sounds innocuous. But what it can often do is when people then are experiencing difficult emotions, it can lead them into a situation where they feel like they've got to force positivity in a way that's false and in a way that then actually takes them away from these um critical messages of emotions, which which we can explore a little bit later, which is that emotions actually data. And I think that's really important for us to to come to. Um, but but you're exactly right. There, there are these display rules and we have these display rules in our culture. It was remarkable to me, for instance, how during this pandemic that that we went through, we were in the shadow of illness and death. Okay, we were in the shadow of illness and death. And for many people, it was one of the most scary experiences, the uncertain experiences, not only the pandemic, but also the fallout in terms of jobs and the economy and like just all the stuff that was going on. But it was remarkable to me how even in the shadow of illness and death, you would go onto Instagram on social media and you would see things like, well, if you didn't use your time in quarantine to start a business, to dust off your screenplay or to perfect your sourdough bread baking, it's not that you lack the time, it's that you lack the discipline. You know, it, it's, it's, it was remarkable to me how even in this context, how the world was saying, unsee yourself, 
Don't be compassionate towards yourself. Be critical towards yourself. Be a taskmaster for yourself. And and I'm not trying to kind of take away from the fact that like connecting with goals and of course all of those things are important, but it's but but in a moment, in a moment where we could instead connect with curiosity, with compassion, with seeing ourselves instead the world was saying, oh, the display rule right now is find the silver lining. And if you're not finding the silver lining, something's wrong with you. And, and don't get me wrong, Sean, like if you, if you, you know, if you were in quarantine as an example, and I know we beyond that, this, but like, I just want to use this as an example. If you used your time in quarantine to, um, I don't know, perfect your knowledge of 20th century Scandinavian cinema, you know, all power to you. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is just interesting that we have these display rules that can lead us into a place of of unseeing, of unseeing of ourselves. Um, and to go just to where you you moving with this question, which is that this happens in our society. It leads to this forced false positivity but we also see it in our homes when a child comes home from school and says mommy daddy 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 no no one would play with me today we want our children to be happy and when we see our children in pain it evokes pain in us. And the discomfort with both our children's pain and our pain can lead us to then short circuit the beautiful value that exists in emotions. So we'll fail to help our children see those emotions as valuable. And instead, what we'll do is we'll jump to solution. We'll say things like, no one would play with you today. Oh, you know, I'll phone the mean girl's parents. Um, it's fine. I'll bake cupcakes with you. I'll, you know, we, we, we do this with really good intentions. We like want to jump in and solve the problem. A child who says, you know, I, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. And immediately we like, you know, your, your child says, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. No, I'm not going to invite them to my birthday party. And immediately we kind of jump into either solution or into dictates. Dictates are where we say, no, you can't not invite them. Like you be the bigger person. You, you know, we, we try to force our children to empathize. We try to force our children towards a particular path. and. What I would love to do is to play out what a different kind of conversation could be. Because when a child comes home from school and says, Mommy, I didn't get invited to Jack's birthday party, and now I'm not going to invite him to mine, what that child is showing is what you were referencing a little bit earlier on, which is this autopilot. Okay? It's like, it's autopilot in a different way. In, in psychology, we call this fusion. 
fusion is when the person over-identifies, I am, Mm -hmm. over-identifies with the thought, the emotion, the story. So fusion, the example we've already given is, I am sad, sadness is all of me, sadness has overcome me, there is no space for anything else. When a child says, I wasn't invited to the birthday party, no, I'm not going to invite them, they are showing fusion. So there's no space for choice. There's no space for who do I want to be. There's no space between stimulus and response. That's what fusion is. It's when the story or the emotion or the thought becomes fact and starts to hold the person hostage. And we want to raise children that are able to not fuse. And I'll, I'll come back to the alternative of what, I'm, of what a conversation could look like, but let me play out why we want to raise children who are not fused. We want to raise children who are not fused, in other words, children who can create space between stimulus and response, because our children, when they are 16 years old or 17 years old, are going to be in situations where someone says, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's let the air out of the principal's car tires. Okay. Now, your child who's fused with the excitement, the peer pressure, I use car tires as an example, but it could be drugs, it could be something else. That child who's fused, who has no space between, is this what I want to do? Is this congruent with my values? Is this truly who I want to be in this situation? That child's just going to act. You know, I am tempted, therefore I am going to do the thing. So it becomes really important for us to help our children to create space between stimulus and response so they can make choices. And how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, connecting very much with a lot of the principles and strategies that we've already spoken about is the first is uh, when we show up to difficult emotions where we're not judging them, when we're not saying things like the emotion is good or it's bad or you're not allowed to feel that way. Instead, we show up to the emotions. In other words, we create space for them. Um, Sean, I think you might have first discovered my work in my TED talk. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. In my TED talk, I, I introduced this very powerful phrase, which is a phrase uh, that is very common in South Africa where I was born. And the phrase is sawubona, uh, sawubona, S-A-W-U-B-O-N-A, sawubona. And sawubona is a Zulu greeting. You hear it every day on the streets of South Africa. Saubona, yebo saubona. It basically means hello. Um, but there's such a beautiful and powerful intention behind the word saubona because saubona literally translated means I see you. I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And it's so powerful. You know, imagine our spouse, our partner, feeling sawabonad. And of course, 
when I'm talking about emotions in this way, I'm talking about suborbonering ourselves, being with ourselves in ways that are curious and compassionate and courageous. And so back to our child, back to our child, the child says, mommy, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. Now I'm not going to invite this person to mine. We want to jump in and we want to say, you've got to invite them. You can't just not invite them. We start with our dictates. We start with our moralizing or we start with our fixing, fixing, fixing. And instead, if we just create space, we just sawabona, that child is feeling rejected. That child is feeling sad. That child is feeling a lack of belonging. There is so much pain that that child is experiencing. And if as a parent, we could be present with that, just that, just that is extraordinary. Just that we know in studies when a child is feeling activated and challenged, just that sawabona de-escalates the intensity of emotions. So that's the first part, which is you're not jumping to judge, you're jumping to see, or you you holding space, you're creating space to see. Um, there are other strategies and tools in that context, but I want to pause <laughs> to just, you know, to see if that if that, this feels helpful yeah you just said the the f word feels you know so this is another uh really poignant thing which is you know again when we have these emotions again this is this programming if we're wondering why we are the way we are as an adult it's largely programming when we're children and we're just replaying that stuff you know and in in today's medicalization of our emotions it's kind of like even if we have these emotions that we again we label as bad, you know, anxiety or sadness, just like don't feel that, right? We'll do that in various ways, or even here's a here's a drug so you don't feel that. Instead of paying attention to this is what I want to circle back to you on. You said these key words that our emotions are data. Yes. Right. So it's like don't feel that data. We'll mask it with this drug. We'll mask it with this ignorance, ignoring that data. Yeah. So let's talk about. The heart of it, which is these emotions. Emotions being data. are data. Yeah. And I can I can I can speak to that even in the context of this child example. And then we can bring it back to us as adults. So a core part of my work is that emotions are data. And what do I mean by that? I mean that emotions signpost the things that we care about. Emotions signpost the things that we care about. So let me play this with this child example, but then bring it into us as as adults. And I want to say us as adults with five-year-old children inside of ourselves, because every single one of us is is an adult with a five-year-old child inside of ourselves. So the child who says, I'm angry because when we dig a little bit deeper and we move towards greater levels of emotion granularity that I described earlier, what is beneath that anger, actually it's rejection 
or it's sadness or it's something else, then we start getting to the heart of what's really going on. So that's the, this labeling and moving, like labeling accurately, but labeling in a way that's not over-identifying. Uh, then what we start being able to do is to recognize emotions as data. So let me play this through, which is the child that feels sad and rejected. There is such a powerful conversation in there with the child about, and obviously this depends on age, but we know that we can even start having these conversations with children as young as two and three years old. Children as young as two and three years old who are more able to differentiate between different types of emotions have greater levels of mental health and well-being, delayed gratification over time for the reasons that I described earlier, which is they, they are more able when they are in front of situations that are tempting or difficult to be able to say, hmm, is this me? What do I want to do here? And so on. So emotions are data. A child who's angry because they feel like they've been rejected, but is able to connect with the sadness, what are the data? Like, what is the need that's being signposted? Really, that child, what is the child saying? The child is saying, friendship is important to me. Friendship is important to me. It's not about the birthday party. The child might be saying, friendship is important to me. So as a parent, there's this, there's this beautiful door that has been opened to the conversation of what does being a good friend look like? How do you want to be as a friend? Um, how do you want to come to other people who have been rejected? What you're starting to do is you are starting to recognize, you know, one of the threads that I think is so beautiful in the conversation that we're having is that there's this thread of being grounded with yourself, of seeing yourself. And in that is of seeing your needs and your values. And so your emotions and your child's emotions are actually signposting their needs and their values. I remember many years ago, my daughter coming home from school, being super, super, super angry with the school teacher because she had been told that she was too young to play on a particular play structure. And she was outraged that, you know, <laughs> the at the audacity. age, you know, the audacity <laughs> that at the age of like six, she wasn't allowed to climb, you know, however high because that particular play structure was only open to the older kids. And she was outraged by this. And she kept on saying to me, you know, it's my body. I need to know how high I can go. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And she was going on and on and on and on about it. And in fact, um, not only was she outraged with the teacher, but when I came to collect her from school that day, she was actually yelling at the teacher. And it was her first day of kindergarten. She was like telling the teacher about how outraged she was. Now, of course, as a parent, you kind of want to jump in and you want to say like, you cannot yell at your teacher. Like, that's not okay. Go to your room. You know, you want to do all of these things. But the power in the conversation that followed was the power of talking about autonomy. You know, how there, there is this like 
importance in knowing what's important to you. Okay, so there is such power in that conversation. We also had power in, again, this idea of emotions as data. My daughter's anger was signposting to her that she thought that the situation was unfair, that she cares about fairness. She felt that it was like not an okay thing that there was this play structure as an example available, but she wasn't allowed to use it. And we had this really beautiful conversation about it seems like a strong value of yours is fairness. And Sean, I remember years later, years later, she came to me and she said something happened at school to someone else. And she said to me, and mommy, I didn't like it. And I said so to the other person because I value fairness. And she said that to me and I was like, mm. so, so the point that I'm making here is not that I'm, I'm a, because I stuff up all the time with this. Um, all of us as parents are just doing the best we can. But the point that I'm really making here is often what we see is we see an emotion through a display rule. You allowed it, you're not allowed it, and we moralize about it. But actually, if we can instead see that there's a need or a value that's being signposted by that difficult emotion, and if we can ground the conversation in the need or the value, there is something very, very powerful, um, healthy, whole that comes from that. And let me just, I know I'm going on about this, but let me play this out about what this looks like in an adult context, which is, I feel bored at work. I feel bored. Imagine someone says, I'm bored. I'm busy, but I'm bored. Boredom is signposting perhaps that you need more learning and growth. Boredom is signposting a value that you have. And if you just discount that difficult emotion and you say, well, I shouldn't be bored, I should be grateful, at least I've got a job, then you aren't positioning yourself to adapt to your world as it is and to your needs and your values. Um, loneliness. We can be lonely in a crowd. We can be lonely in a marriage. We can be lonely on Zoom call after Zoom call. Loneliness is signposting that we value intimacy and connection and we need more of it. Um, gr grief, you know, grief, I often think that grief is love. You know, gr grief is love looking for a home. And, and what do I mean by that? Uh, grief if it's the grief of a relationship or the grief of a person, is, is often I think about my dad who died uh, when I was 15 and I often when I move into spaces of grief, it's almost like this person is tapping me on the shoulder and saying, remember the times, remember the lessons, remember the special moments. So grief is a kind of an activation that says grief is love, listen to the memories. If it's grief of something that we once had or grief of a job or, or grief of a um, dream, what that's doing is it's saying that there is something that was in that experience that was important. 
that needs to be surfaced. So anyway, I'm going on about this idea, but it's really important because what it's doing is it's moving us away from the idea of being judgy about our difficult emotions instead to moving us into the space of recognizing that our emotions are data with a very, very important caveat here, which is emotions are data. They are not directives. I'll say that again. Emotions are data. They're not directives. Just because I feel sad or angry doesn't mean I get to have it all out in whatever way I want. You know, I needed to have an important conversation with my daughter about how just because you are angry, there's a difference between how we feel and how we act. Just because you are angry doesn't mean you get to yell at your school teacher. You know, I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister. I can suborner it. I can love it. I can see it. I can connect with the values. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing his idea that he gets to give her away to the first stranger that he sees in a shopping mall. (laughs) We own our emotions. They don't own us. I love this so much. Our emotions are data, not directives. That's so powerful. They're not directives. Because again, if our emotions become directives, then we're being fused with them. Right. If we say something like, I am sad, it's all of me, therefore there's no point in trying. Now our emotions have become directives. Instead, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, I am sad, I'm feeling compassion with the sadness because it's hard to human. What is beneath the sadness? What's beneath the sadness is that I've, for example, uh, got a sense of loss about a dream or something that is important to me. And so now we get to, again, move out of our heads into our lives and say, in what ways can I be courageous towards moving towards that value? Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. No lifts, no gifts. Here are just a few benefits of building muscle seen in peer-reviewed studies. Building some muscle mass can significantly improve your insulin sensitivity improve your overall hormone health, improve your cognitive performance, improve your immune system, protect you against injuries and speed recovery, and defend your body against age-related degradation. This is just a small slice of what a little bit more muscle can do. Now the barrier of entry to building more healthy muscle and reaching a state of physical fitness is easier than ever. Having a few key pieces of equipment at your house can absolutely change the game for you. Kettlebells, steel clubs, maces, battle ropes, all of these phenomenal multifaceted pieces of equipment are readily available to ship directly to your door. Go to onit.com forward slash model and you're going to receive 10% off some of the most premier training equipment in the world. Simple pieces of equipment that you can do dozens if not hundreds of different exercises with plus they've got incredible programs as well to teach you different techniques for unconventional training to truly create more functionality in your health and fitness on top of all that on is also one of the world leaders in human performance nutrition 
They've got the most remarkable pre-workout supplements and post-workout protein that you're going to find. All sourced from earth-grown ingredients, nothing synthetic, and they also have put their own products into real-world clinical trials to affirm their efficacy. Again, go to onit.com forward slash model. That's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash model for 10% off everything they carry. Now, back to the show. What you're doing, you're providing us with a psychological gym to go to, to build up our emotional agility muscles. And one of these is right now is tuning into that data, fostering the ability to have compassion and understanding of that data, right? Is in particular what we put in these camps of negative emotions, but maybe difficult emotions, right? So fostering the courage and ability to do that, that's one way of building up those muscles of emotional yeah. agility. Another one I wanna ask you about is to shift our perspective. To merely shift our perspective is one of the tools or ways for us to build our emotional agility. What does that mean? Yeah. So shifting perspective is not about pretending that the emotion isn't there, just trying to think positive, uh, ignoring. All of those strategies are hustle strategies and they don't work when it comes to emotions. All of us, every single one of us have had that experience of there's something yummy in the fridge. You trying to eat healthily. You try not to think about that thing in the fridge. And then all you do is you think about that, that thing. There is this well-worn psychological principle called amplification. And amplification is the idea that when we try to push aside or hustle with those difficult experiences, they don't just go away. They actually have a rebound effect. And so... Uh, what I mean by shifting perspective is not a forced false positivity, which which forced false positivity sh suggests moving away from that emotion. What I'm suggesting is a turning toward the emotion, a turning toward the emotion to try and understand it, to understand the values that it's pointing to to understand this thing that I'm calling X, actually, maybe it's really Y. Um, another really important part of this is compassion. You know, it. I, I mentioned this before, like this, this I think is a really important shift, which is we live in a world that suggests that success is A and then B, that there is a clear path between A and B. What we don't talk about is the in-between space. We don't talk about the messy middle, the space of confusion, that space when you aren't sure, like, should I move into that new career? Is this relationship working out or not? Is this... You, you, there's this messy middle that is so powerful and and yet our world conspires to there's an a and there's a b and if you if you not at b and you not at a then there's something wrong with you and i i have committed with my team this year to name the messy middle to name the messy middle because there's such power 
in saying, we don't have the answer here. We're in the messy middle. We don't know what it is. When we name the messy middle, we give ourselves permission to be in that space and to explore it and for it to not feel like there's something wrong. Like, I'm in the messy middle. Like, I don't know if I should move house, move career, move. I don't know. I'm in the messy middle. And so when we name that space, I, I like to think of it as the, the liminal space, the, the, the shadow space. When we name it, it's beautiful because if we just give a little bit of space to it and compassion to it, then what we do is we step into being curious, uh, exploring what could it be. There's no shame there's there's breathing, there's centeredness, there's groundedness in it. So there's a shift, I think, in perspective that happens when you're in confusion, when you're in sadness, when you're in disappointment, whatever, whatever the experience is, when you're in that difficult emotion, to actually recognize, I, I love this, like not to get all kind of Greek philosopher here, but there's this, there's this beautiful quote uh, by Heraclitus, who's a Greek philosopher, and and he, he described this idea. He says, or he said, you can never step into the same river twice. And I love that because, again, the world conspires to say the river is unchanging and human beings are unchanging and there is an A and there's a B and you've just got to find your path. But the truth, the bothness is that the world is always changing. The world being the economic context, the environment, the data, the human beings around us, the relationships around us, the world is changing. And we as human beings are changing constantly. If we weren't, there would be something wrong. So we are changing. And so what that does is it invites us into the place of recognizing that if we are changing and the world is changing constantly, then the only certainty is uncertainty. <laughs> and what comes with uncertainty is joy and happiness and all the difficult emotions and all the confusion. And therefore, we can move away from shame of, I don't know the bee, and we can say, I'm in confusion, I'm in messy middle. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that's where creativity, that's where um, kind of thinking big, that's where curiosity, uh, that's where growth, that's where learning, that's where real conversations happen. And it's, it's like the most gorgeous space. Oh, I love that. Such a great philosophy to even live by, just, you know, because everything is constantly changing and evolving. Like, every microsecond, even us, you know? And yeah. so that's so powerful. And I love this ability. One of the beautiful things about human beings is our ability to perspective take, to zoom out and to imagineer a different way of looking at things, right? And so even with that shift in perspective, it could just be where we're in this kind of base one state where we are the emotion and just zooming out a little bit and looking yes. at that. But even from there, because even, when you started to share that insight about the shift in perspective, and you said the word compassion, I thought about, you know, when I might have a conflict with my best friend, my significant other, my wife, and I have an emotion I'm bringing to the table, 
And there was a time when I was the emotion. You know, I'm just living in that state to be able to zoom out and look at, okay, what's going on here? Why do I feel this way? But then to zoom yes. out another level as well, where I can see, okay, what is her emotional state? Why does she feel this way? And start to kind of imagine here, even though I can't literally walk in her shoes, because we have this kind of statement as well, like walking in someone else's shoes. But we can, we have the capacity based on our yes. experience to yes. be able to do some of that. Yes. And it kind of breaks apart the in inflammation of this situation. Uh, I think it's so powerful. Um, perspective taking is one of our most profound capacities as human beings. Again, when we're stuck in the emotion, it's like, I am sad. I am a failure. I am angry. There's no point. We're stuck in the emotion. And I had the joy a couple of uh, months ago of actually doing a talk for NASA, where for the first time I was actually speaking to the people who experienced this, which is this well-known recognition of what is called the overview effect. The overview effect is this idea that when you go into space, if when one goes into space one day. Um, but when people have described when they go into space, how they look back on the earth and the earth is now just this pinprick of blue and suddenly their sense of self, um, you feel simultaneously insignificant, but not insignificant as in worthless. You feel insignificant in that there's so much context now. Because, of course, when we're stuck in our difficult emotion, there is no context. We are the everything. We aren't actually seeing the world around us. How's the other person feeling? What were they intending? Uh, what else is going on? Is the person tired? You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in our context. And so perspective taking, which is which is often this overview effect, is, is very powerful. And some of the strategies that I've already given, the labeling of emotion is a uh, is helping us to, you know, because because what is the core here? The core is that you cannot read the label when you are stuck inside the jar. So we need to be able to get outside the jar in order to act effectively. So how do we get outside the jar? Well, Labeling our emotions accurately is one example. Um, noticing our thoughts, our emotions, and stories for what they are. Cloud, not the sky, is another example. Uh, just giving space, giving space for the fact that we are learning, we are growing, um, we are in the messy middle, is another strategy. Another strategy that we often use in in uh, psychology, which is just so fascinating, is Imagine someone's feeling stuck and they come and they say to you, Susan, I don't know what to do about this particular situation. I'm stuck. And you say to them, well, what could you do? And they go, I don't know. That's why I'm talking to you because I'm stuck. I've got like no ability to problem solve about this. And it could be problem solving about a relationship or where next to go in one's career or whatever it is. So you can have this like back and forth with a person where they stuck and you trying to help them to get unstuck. And yet there is this inability to change perspective or to widen perspective. And then you do something and you say, I want you to imagine for a moment someone who you believe in, who you trust, who you see as being really wise. And I want you 
for a moment to imagine that this person, it could be, it could be uh, someone you know, like a, a teacher or a parent, or it could be some other kind of role model. And I want you to imagine for a moment that this person comes into the room with us. And there is a chair there for this person. And this person is now going to give you advice on what you should be doing about this feeling of being stuck. So you have this remarkable conversation. So let me just play this to you, which is the person is feeling stuck and they've had no ability to shift or breathe into or get space or other perspective from this being stuck. And now you invite them to bring another perspective into the conversation. And, and you say like, so what would your wise uncle who's now in the room with you advise? And they, they, they'll say things like, oh, well, my uncle would tell me to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And what's remarkable about this conversation, this imagining conversation, is of course there is no real uncle sitting in the room. All you're doing in this is you are bringing an imaginary alternative perspective into the conversation. And suddenly the individual who's been stuck for weeks is now saying, well, you know, what the person would advise is that I do A, that I do B, that I, you know, have a conversation, that I, you know, apply for a new role. Suddenly the person who's feeling stuck gets unstuck. But it's not because there's a real other individual in the room. It's because they've brought a different perspective into the room. Um, you know, this. Listen, you don't know this, but for <laughs> years I've been doing this. I've never talked about this really, but I picked it up maybe, uh, maybe 12, 15 years ago from Napoleon Hill. Yes. Think and Grow Rich. Yes. And he has this concept of your board of trusted advisors and this mental exercise. So for years, and I still do this, I'll probably do it like once a week now. Yeah. Before I go to sleep. I'll summon my board of trusted advisors. It's usually eight seats. And sometimes, you know, the characters there will shift. I love but, it. and I'll go around the table and ask them about a particular, you know, challenge or goal or whatever it is that I have going on and their opinion or their perspective on everything, right? So we'll go around the table. And usually I do this before I go to sleep. And oftentimes I only get through like six of the yeah. people, you know, but it's been, it's one of those things where I don't even realize how valuable this has been in my life, you know, having that practice. It's so powerful. I love that you share that. It's so powerful because I think what it's doing is it's again, moving us from the place of stuckness and fusion into the space of values and wisdom. And, and what's so beautiful about this is that it's all coming from inside you. Mm, yeah. And I think that this is the essence of it. Like this is, you know, this is a world that promises that the solutions are all outside of us. And 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 often, you know, when people say like, well, what is emotional agility? And I say, well, like, I'm going to give the nerd definition, which is about being able to experience all of our difficult emotions with curiosity, with compassion, and with the courage to take values connected steps. And that's the nerd example. The, the unnerd example, even though there's not a word unnerd, but the unnerd example is it's about seeing ourselves 
it's about seeing ourselves and seeing the the beauty and the wisdom that is inside every single one of us and and i would love if people are thinking about how do i start developing this board of advisors i would love to do this very quick thing which is to for every single person listening right now one person on your board of advisors is the 5 year old inside of you you know we all we walk through life and we've got our modern day armor you know our belts and our makeup and our hats and our shoes and our, we've got our modern day armor but inside every single one of us there is a 5 year old there is a 5 year old and you know we can imagine our little 5 year old feet we can imagine the 5 year old going through our household home actually having a conversation with that wise person in the household home and there is a 5 year old inside of you and so i invite everyone and i'm inviting myself to do this right now as we're speaking to ask yourself what is my 5 year old need right now what is my 5 year old inviting me to do right now is your 5 year old saying you need more joy more spontaneity more creativity is your 5 year old saying be more curious you know is your 5 year old saying that you need more care for yourself is your 5 year old saying you know just see me hold me love me like what is your 5 year old saying because i think that we have people might say well i don't have a board of advisors I don't have this I don't I don't have these people. I would suggest that one of the ways we start to develop this is by recognizing that there is a 5-year-old that is there that is saying see me, love me. And there is a person on that board of advisors who is maybe 20 or 30 years older than you currently are. Maybe 7 years old maybe 80 years old maybe 85 years old maybe 60 years old 20 or 30 years older than you currently are there is a person inside of you who is your future self who is saying see me love me and these are the things that i need from you and i think that is powerful because that starts to ground us not just in the moment but also in the sense that we we are a stable being yes we change yes the world is changing but there is a sense of core inside of us that is very powerful if we will just connect with it and just love it and just see it dr susan david you are now on my board of advisors my board of trusted advisors thank you so much for sharing that that just blew me away because i'm I already am implementing it as you're speaking. I'm seeing that and I'm feeling the feelings. It is very, uh, very visceral. And there's so much intelligence that we have within us that 
just by simply framing things a certain way or asking certain questions, it brings it out. And so I'm so grateful for that. And if you could, can you let everybody know where they can connect with you more, follow yes. you, get your books, yes. all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. I just, I love the conversation and it's so beautiful having it in person. So my book is called Emotional Agility. And my TED Talk is The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And then lastly, a lot of people find really uh, powerful and helpful. I've got a quiz on my website that is completely free. Around 200,000 people have taken it. And you can find it at susandavid.com forward slash learn. And you get a free 10-page report out of that. And then, you know, in social media, I try to post um, I try to post things that are very congruent and intentional and thoughtful, and I I love to engage with people there. Yeah, you do. I mean, so much of what you share today is there sprinkled throughout yeah. your social media. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I want to use it as a as a force for connection. Yeah, it's needed, and you're needed. So thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you, thanking, thank you for bringing these ideas into the world. Oh, it's Love my it. pleasure. Dr. Susan David, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. That was filled to the brim with some powerful insights that we can all utilize right now and utilize with our families is super important. I can't stress this enough. And even at the end of the episode and talking about being able to shift our perspective and the exercise that I shared about consulting with your board of trusted advisors, you know, this is being able to put yourself in another position to get feedback based on your association. It's, this doesn't have to be people that you know directly in your life. This is the key. This can be people that you know from spending time with them via you know, social media or listening to podcasts or a historical figure, you know, somebody that you have an association with and you kind of would be able to tap into what would they say? What would they think? What would they do? Right? And being able to have this board of trusted advisors that you consult with, you know, this is a mental exercise that can give you different perspective, especially when you're feeling stuck. You know, and this is just one of the capacities that we have as human beings to be able to shift our point of view. But oftentimes we get tunnel vision, we get psychological tunnel vision, seeing things in one way. When you have the ability to see things from multiple perspectives instantaneously, it, we have access to this at all times. But especially when we're under stress, we tend to resort to our one-track thinking. But we can train ourselves to evolve beyond that. Because again, as the statement says, we don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. I appreciate you so much for tuning into this episode. Make sure to share this out with your friends and family. Of course, you can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and tag Dr. Susan David as well. And let everybody know what you thought about this episode. And of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on to share the empowerment, share the education. We've got some epic shows coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.